Dr. Peter Lilliadol is a professor at Simon Fraser University and a renowned mathematics education researcher. His book, Building Thinking Classrooms in Mathematics, presents over 15 years of research on essentially getting students to do more thinking. It's a fascinating read, and I was really honored that he took the time to speak with me. Without further ado, I'm very excited to introduce Dr. Peter Lilliadol. All right. I did my best to try to listen to as many interviews about this book uh, before this. And I'm not sure that any interviews opened with this, although I'm sure you might have been asked this. I was initially really impressed by the layout of your book. And I'm really curious about how much thought went into that, because the book is profoundly impactful um, and extremely thought provoking. But there's something very comforting as you're sort of, at least in my opinion, I was sort of like going through these like really not radical, but very thought provoking ideas. Um, there was something very comforting and methodical and obviously well thought out about the format of your book and the outline of it um, or the layout of it rather. Can you talk a little bit about how intentional that was? I, I just can't imagine. Uh, you would strike Okay. Over. I'm happy to. Uh, yeah. It was definitely intentional not by me. Um, so this is, uh, what happened was that early on, there was um, a math teacher in Ottawa, in Canada's capital, who would do sketch notes on my talks. So she would come to my talks and do sketch notes on them and then post them on social media. And they were such amazing sketch notes that, you know, we became friends. And then, um, when when I knew we needed an illustrator for this book, she she was identified by the publisher saying, well, what about Laura? So Laura Wheeler, who is who was a math teacher in Ottawa, she's now a librarian, uh, became the, the illustrator and did an amazing job. Mm. And um, I fed her what it was what it was I needed for illustrations in terms of I need this to be here because I'm going to be talking about it. Um, but then the publisher worked directly with her to have other things added because there are illustrations all throughout that are really just, they're, they're representative of what's being talked about in the book, but they're not being referenced per se. They're just visually appealing and, and uh, sort of create that visual sense as you're reading the book as well. Um, when the book was first formatted before it went to print, Corwin told me, my editor, Aaron Null told me that this was uh, the most in visually intense book that Corwin had ever published. Hmm. And uh, so it's nice that you noticed that because it was a lot of effort, a lot of deliberate effort to, to make this book visually appealing. And, and what was the exact wording that said visually intense? Uh, I think it was, vis- yeah, maybe visually, yeah, intense book that they've ever done. I Interesting. Yeah, I imagine from a production perspective, it would be intense. But from a reading perspective, some of the some of the graphs and charts are so simple and so in your face that you're like, oh, okay, like, that's how little thinking happens in the classroom. Yeah. Or the- well, those, <laughs> that's how many those, people are faking things, right? Right, right. So those are things that I fed to Laura, but she just makes them look so much better. And 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 her style of making it look like it's, it's part of a notebook sort of thing, as opposed yeah, to good point. here's a bunch of text and, you know, a typical PowerPoint eye chart, that type of thing. Yeah. <clears throat> Fascinating. Yeah. I just couldn't start without 
without at least oh it's a good and the the color was my choice by the way nice because orange is my favorite color yeah (laughs) there you go um okay so i want to start to lay some groundwork for the context of this book Mm -hmm. i know it through your introduction or some introductory part of this i can't remember exactly where it was you talked about this essentially being the culmination of 15 years of research and the research i should say is about how to get students to, and I'm sure you could encapsulate this better. So forgive my paraphrase, but my interpretation was how to get students to think more in the classroom. And it started with this realization that we actually can't take that for granted, that students are primarily thinking in the classroom. And I'm really curious what the catalyst was <laughs> because it is really fundamental, but sometimes those fundamental thoughts are the most profound and the most overlooked. And I'm so curious what the catalyst was for you thinking. I should really spend 15 years thinking about a whether or not students think and how to get them to think more. Okay, so um, a whole bunch of things here. Uh, the book is—I probably say this in the book—that it's a culmination, but that's now untrue because I've continued doing the work. Sure. So there are new things um, that have emerged and so on and so forth. But it's—but I'm continuing to work at it. So now we're at 20 years in. Close to 20 years. Um, oh, yeah, no, it's about 20 years. Um, so the catalyst was that sort of happenstance occurrence that I talked about in the introduction where um, a teacher reached out to me. I was working on my PhD. So I'm a former classroom teacher. I'm working on my PhD. Um, I left the classroom to focus on the PhD. And <clears throat> as part of that, I, I was sort of spending a fair bit of time thinking, exploring, and doing professional development work around problem solving. And at the time where we live in BC and Canada, um, problem solving was just on the horizon of the new curriculum. Like it all had had always been there, but now there was gonna be this emphasis on teaching through problem solving. And this one teacher, this very sort of deliberate organized teacher thought she should get ahead of that. Her name is Jane. And she reached out to me and asked if I could come and help. And and when when she said help, what she really wanted was me to just to give her some tasks. But we came to sort of an accord where I would give her tasks, but I would get to sit in the classroom and watch her use them. And and just what a disaster that was, right? <laughs> like it was like it was like a dumpster fire, scorched earth. Like it was like nothing good came out of that. And I sat in that room for three consecutive days watching her try to implement this in one of her one of her classes, and then. Uh, after that, um, trying to figure out what went wrong when so often these things had worked well for me. Um, so sitting there in her classroom for three additional days and now for entire days just watching her teach mm-hmm. and watching what the student's activity was and coming to this realization, this epiphany that, huh, there's not a lot of thinking going on here. And not only is there not a lot of thinking going on, all the activities that are planned for these students are by and large not requiring them to do any thinking. Mm. And then and then spiraling out from that, trying to understand if this was a, a unique problem and to, to that teacher and then visiting other classrooms in that school and realizing that, no, this is throughout the entire school. And then wondering if it's a unique problem to that school and then spiraling out to 40 different classrooms and 40 different schools to try to get a handle on 
just how pervasive this was. And it turns out it's really pervasive. Um, and that's not to say that these teachers were bad teachers. These were amazing teachers. Um, it's just that thinking was not something that was highly regarded within, with, within these educational structures, within these institutional norms. And what's ironic is, you know, as the research went on and I would interview students and so on and so forth, like I remember students saying things to me like, yeah, thinking's not important. If it was, they teach it to us in school, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's just how far we've come from that idea that thinking is important um, in place. And we replaced it with uh, performance, uh, production, routines, um, and so on and so forth. So it was it was that epiphany. And then realizing further that really what seemed to be holding this non-thinking in place were the sort of institutional normative routines that exist within schools writ large, not just math, not just not just in Canada, but around the world. Because I've been in classrooms all over the, the world and just how much we see these institutionally normative structures that just de-emphasize thinking in, in uh, instead of instead they're just prioritizing like I said performance production hmm. conformity compliance I'm thinking I was obviously open-minded enough to read the book although it did um, it did take a little bit of a sell because I was coming from an English background um, of course it's thinking classrooms and mathematics so I thought even if it is brilliant, I'm not sure that uh, I'm even going to be able to put it into practice. I, I am in a, working sort of in an academic support capacity, so I thought maybe I could talk to some math teachers about this, but that's if the book is brilliant, which obviously, as I alluded to, I've already started to do. Um, so I was a little resistant at first, and I'm thinking back to that first chapter where you were able to convince me what some people listening might you know be thinking right now which is something like what do you mean by thinking and of course aren't students thinking like what else would they be doing in the classroom right <laughs> and, I, and i'm sure and i'm sure you've answered this a million times so i apologize for that <laughs> you do a really great job in that parag in that chapter rather like like making it very clear that thinking is not granted primacy in the classroom and students are of course not defaulting to that and i'm sure right. there's all sorts of interesting psychological reasons as to why um but Oh, yeah. What are they doing if they're not thinking? Okay. So first of all, you said there's lots of psychological reasons why. If anybody who's listening ever wants to dig into that, I had a doctoral student, Darian Allen, who did a deep dive into that from a psychological perspective, mm. um, trying to understand what it is that's going on. I'll come back to that later. Darian um, Allen? Darian Allen, A-L-L-A-N. Um so what are they doing? Well, some of them are slacking, and I'm sure some of you have seen that. Some of them are stalling. Can I go to the bathroom? Some of them are faking, pretending to be working. Uh, but the vast majority are just doing what's called mimicking. And mm. mimicking is mimicking is where the students are just really blindly following the instructions of what it is that's expected of them. Um, they are they're they're just it's pervasive in mathematics um but i think it's pervasive across the board because i work a lot cross-curricular now so you know think about that rubric that you create 
that is very prescriptive about what it is you want to see. And then the student just very clearly follows our rubric without actually having to have a critical thought at all. Sure. Just just sort of plugging along and filling in all the squares and, and you know, checking the boxes. Um, <clears throat> and what we have to understand about mimicking is that mimicking is not thinking, not, not in the way we need students to think in order to be continue to continue to be effective learners uh, in, in school or or productive in in employment and in in challenging academic settings and things like this um there's a difference between critically and creatively thinking and and actually figuring something out for yourself and then just following the instructions right um and where is where did this 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 push to follow instructions come from it came from the dawn of public education um 170 years ago when public education was created in north america and the rest of the world the end of the first industrial revolution the explicit goals of education were conformity and compliance <clears throat> they were trying to build factory workers and <clears throat> we have just that is just one of these sets of institutional norms that has continued to persist for the last 170 years. And one, and, and there's a whole bunch of practices around that, but one particular practice that is pervasive is the I do, we do, you do. Let me demonstrate, let's do one together, now you do it on your own. Sure. And how that doesn't actually set students up for thinking. It actually, what it does is it incentivizes mimicking. And mimicking is effective from a production perspective. Like, from being productive, <laughs> mimicking will get you there. Uh, and that's one of the problems because it is effective to begin with. And that it's so appealing and addictive to students because of that. But eventually it runs out. For every single person who adopts mimicking as a learning strategy, they will eventually hit that wall where all of a sudden their ability to mimic doesn't allow them to continue to be productive because the demands of curriculum just eventually get you there. And we see it all the time. In math, algebra one is where the wheels fall off on so many students. And we see it at universities. So many university students or post-secondary students get there and they've managed to get the marks. They've managed to mimic their way through high school. And now they're actually expected to think and reason and, and they just have never learned to play that game. Mm. And when we get into this deep dive uh, from a psychological perspective, one of the things that Darian found was that, you know, like there are a number of different um, motives that students have or a number of different goals that students have in school, one of which is learning. Sure. But that is almost by far the minority. Yeah. Most students' goal is either to get good grades get good enough grades, fly under the radar, right? Like those are primarily the goals. And when a student's goal is to get good grades, they behave very differently than a student whose goal it is to learn. Mm. And from a thinking perspective, I think you can also see how, how hugely different those are. And yet the student whose goal it is to get good grades, when you talk to them, they they can't imagine that there's another purpose to uh, to school like like isn't that the game isn't that what you want me to do like you keep yeah. going on about getting good grades and that's what I'm doing and like these students don't they don't know that there's something else that's actually 
expected of them. This might be slightly tangential in relation to our context building, but I'm curious as you, as you've seen this implemented at various levels, if yeah. there's a if there's sort of like an unconditioning or deconditioning issue at certain grade levels. Yes. Um, where like I imagine the later they are in the game, you know, just thinking through this right now, the later they are in that game, the more rehearsed they are, it might they might be indignant actually that you might ask yeah. them to have a different priority. Uh, it depends on the demographic. It depends on the student. Like the student who's in that AP lit course in grade sure. 12, uh, well, you know, those courses are already demanding a fair bit of thinking. But think about the student who gets to grade 11 and has been very successful playing the game of school a certain way. And mm -hmm. now you're changing the way that game is played. Um, they they can be very resistant, but they're the minority. Like, think about the students who have gotten to grade 11 who haven't been sure. good at playing the game of school. Yeah. And now you're changing the game into a way that is actually more accessible, more enjoyable, more effective for them. Mm. Right. So it depends on the demographic. There's a lot of variables. Um, it depends on how you start. It depends on what kind of relationship you have with the teacher, just like anything else. Teaching is a relationship um, enterprise. So it, it depends on so many different things. Interesting. One of the things I was fascinated uh, by was your your willingness to experiment with uh, things that are really taken for granted as staples of classrooms. And I had this flashback to a charter school network where I worked and this really phenomenal mentor of mine that I had who had this, we had this one moment where I was willing to try something in the classroom. And she said, Kevin, we do not experiment on students. And I thought that's, that's really all we're doing, right? We're a charter school, <laughs> you know, uh, maybe we have a few years of having done this, but it feels, it felt to me that while of course there's a certain salience to that phrase, um, you know, people might say, Oh yeah, of course, of course we don't experiment on children. Uh, I thought, isn't a certain ethical experimentation necessary, like, you know, in the, in the evolution of a teacher in a classroom, et cetera. And you certainly seem to fly in the face of that. And I was, I, I was just interested if you had certain philosophies or like any principles while you were thinking about experimenting. I think you mentioned one, it was like, whatever the default was, we just tried to see what the opposite effect would be and then sort of go from there. So, so of course that sort of, statement we don't experiment on children is totally untrue because every single teacher experiments on children sure, sure. um that's how your practice evolves if, if if you didn't experiment in your pedagogy your practice would look exactly the same in year 13 as it did week one yeah. of year one right like your practice evolves through trial and error through through professional growth um and every one of those things every single every single time you try something, that is an experiment. Um, by and large, um, I would hope that most people, if they try something that they can see immediately causes harm, that they would rethink that. Sure. But it's, but it's, or, or understand that there's a delayed positive effect, mm. right? Which often was the case for us that, okay, this, we're not seeing a, a huge effect right now, but wow, now we see a big effect. Interesting. Two, three weeks later. Yeah. Um, but it's, 
Of course, there's always ethical implications. This is why I work at a university. I have to have ethics approval in order to be allowed to do the research and so on and so forth. But it's, um, I think teachers are always experimenting, you know, but always experimenting with a goal of trying to move forward, of sure. trying to create better experiences, better learning, better understanding, better retention, um, better, better education for students. And I'm curious, what were some of your heuristics when you were sort of tinkering with some of the foundations of what you saw to be staples in the classroom? Like, what were your heuristics for experimentation? Okay, so um, the only thing we took as non-negotiable was the bell schedule and the four walls of the classroom. Fair. Right. Um, and whatever sorts of institutional constraints were placed on us. Hmm. Right. Like sort of grades were due on November 15th. The grades had to be in on November 15th. This was non-negotiable. So the institution uh, places constraints on on us in our work in the classroom, just like it places constraints on the teacher in the classroom. So we worked within those lines because what's the point of finding solutions that somehow no one can implement because the constraints don't allow that to be the case? Hmm. Right. Like it doesn't do us any good to figure out a best way to teach in the gym because sure. we're never going to be allowed to use the gym for that purpose. Sure. Right. So it's we have to we, we worked within those constraints. Other than that, we just explored and examined everything that was in there, everything mm -hmm. from uh, how furniture is placed to how groups are formed to where students are when we give them a task. To, to what time, how far into the lesson the task needs to be given, to uh, how to sequence tasks, how to consolidate a lesson. We just explored systematically everything that, that, that was related to that. Um, and by not taking things for granted, it's amazing to think about just how many things in education we just assume are either non-negotiable or that they're already in some sort of an optimal state. Mm -hmm. So for example, one of, one of the really clear results of our research was if when we give the task, we have the students stand in loose formation around us as we're giving them the task, they are more attentive and they're quicker to the task and we get more thinking out of them. Um, who would have thought? Sure. Like, like sitting is just a, having the students sit in their desks is such a non-negotiable part of, of teaching that, uh, and it's not non-negotiable from the perspective that, oh, someone must have done research on this like a hundred years ago and figured out that sitting in desks is the best way to do it. Sure. But just uh, from a purely management perspective, though, that just sort of makes sense, right? Hmm. Um, but it's, we explored that and it turns out it makes a difference. You, you just alluded to one, possible answer to this question, but I'm, I think I'd be remiss if we moved on without me asking, what were some of the metrics of thinking? Because you said sort of speed with which they right. passed. So, so it depends on which variable we were exploring, right? Okay. Um, so early on in the research, it was really clunky because mm -hmm. thinking is an invisible cognitive process. It's, it's not something that is easy to measure without sort of putting a bathing cap on you and hooking you up to a bunch of sure. sensors. Um, it's, so we have to use what I call proxies for thinking, things that, that can stand in place of thinking, but 
long before that, what I was doing was subtracting away any behavior that possibly couldn't be thinking. And then what was left hmm. were the behaviors that potentially could have thinking in them. So for example, if a kid goes to the bathroom, okay, that doesn't count as thinking, right? They're sharpening their pencil. In fact, they're sharpening all their pencils, uh, not thinking, right? Like it's like just taking away, they're just sitting there playing on their cell phone and talking to their buddy, like take away the things that possibly can't have thinking and then see what's left. Hmm. Um, and that's how I started out, uh, which was sure. really time intensive, really clunky, um, then I started using proxies for thinking, which again, are, are not necessarily thinking, but, um, like how long does it take them to get to task? Like actually start working. How long do they work for? Right. I'm not, I can't guarantee that they're thinking while they're working, but I can pretty much guarantee they're not thinking when they're not working. Right. <laughs> so can we, can we increase these things? Um, eventually in the research, I, I stumbled onto a really powerful proxy. And that's engagement. Um, and I was able to correlate those very closely that um, when a student is thinking, they are engaged and vice versa. Um, and the difference between thinking and engagement is that whereas thinking is an invisible cognitive process, engagement is a visible mm. embodied process. Like if you're standing in your classroom, it is undeniable when students are engaged. Right? Like you can look at a particular student, you can see that they're engaged, right? You can see it in their gestures and the way they lean in. You can see it in their eyes. You can hear it in their voice. You can hear it in the things that they're saying that they are engaged. Um, and that is just so visible. Whereas thinking is so invisible, this is just so visible. Now, there's a flip side to that coin. And the flip side to that coin is that if you're standing in your classroom and you look out across your students and you don't see engagement, there isn't any they're not hiding it from you. Sure. They can't hide it from you. Engagement mm -hmm. has a very clear physicality. And that made the research really simple because I could stand in a room. I could go into any room and do this. All I need is a seating or standing chart. I just need to know where every student is. And I can do an audit. It takes me about, depending on um, what we're doing, it, five to six minutes, I can look at every single student and determine whether or not they're engaged and then assume that they're thinking. And I can do that multiple times per lesson. And it produces some really nice data where you could see, you can see 30 students, you could see that, okay, 80% of them are thinking now, now 90% are thinking in the next five minutes. Now 100% are thinking and they're thinking for 20 minutes. And, or I could look at an individual and watch how they're cycling on and off and so on and so forth. So it's, mm. it's really simple to, to, to analyze when we're, when we're correlating those two things. Are there though, and and forgive me, but are there um, false flags? So mimicking, for example, yeah, might are there false look, positives in that. That's right. So mm -hmm. mimicking might look like the embodiment of engagement, et cetera. It is. It it can't. No, mimicking. If you're using productivity as a proxy for thinking, mimicking can fool you there. Sure. But a student can mimic and not look engaged. Right. Interesting. Like, like by and large, engagement comes with all the markers of interest and curiosity and, and so on and so forth. And it's when you see it. And that's the thing. Like when you actually see students engaged, you realize that, wow, 
this is what engagement looks like. This is what thinking looks like. Engagement is not compliance. Engagement is not the students sitting there doing their work. Engagement is when you actually see their physical being getting involved in the activity because they're interested in it. Interesting. When you have, I'm assuming other people do these audits, do they have, I don't know about strict, but do they have criteria for what markers of? No, you just look at a student, you can tell if they're engaged. By and large, when we've done it, like the the correspondence or the correlation between independent um, evaluators is that's well, interesting. Very high, very high. Interesting. Yeah, like we could three people could look at it, and we get almost exactly the same data. And now I want to go back to an earlier thread. I think I I think that context would be important. That w- how you're defining and thinking about measuring thinking. Yeah. But I want to go back to these different variables, did you have a sense of what your first variable was that you thought maybe was the most impactful or the first thing you were going to look at? And does that correspond with the chapters of the book or? Oh, God, no. Okay. So what was, what was your instinct of what was the first barrier variable or the Um, variable that had, that was the biggest barrier to entry for thinking? So no, there was no, it's hard to identify the first. And Mm -hmm. you asked this question earlier, like, um like how did you sit down and just plot 15 years of research you don't you don't ever plot 15 years of research you sit down and plot this week yeah and then it just accumulates um so the first six months of this research was crazy fun we took a very sort of contrarian approach let's just let's just start doing things the opposite way kids Mm -hmm. are used to sitting let's get them standing they're used to writing on on paper let's get them writing on whiteboards or blackboards or large paper let's get them writing on something different they're they're used to working individually let's put them in groups they're used to being put in selecting their groups let's let we'll select them Hmm. um whatever it was that they were sort of used to we were doing the opposite they're used to us answering our question their questions we're not going to answer them they're used to um being shown how to do it first we're going to get them to do it first we'll show them how to do it second you know like not none of not all of these were winners but we were just trying a lot of different things Um, And we were trying a lot of different things at the same time. And what that meant was that we were seeing positive effects, but we were losing the ability to link any one effect to any one sort of intervention. And that's when I reorganized the research into the 14 variables that the book is made up of Hmm. and started chipping away. Now, one of the early ones was the vertical surface, getting the students working up at vertical whiteboards. And I think the reason that was early was because that was something I'd already been experimenting with as a classroom teacher myself. Uh, no refinements on that, not, but, but the research produced way more ref- refinements around that. But it was something that I had already played with in my practice. So it was one of the things that we experimented with in here. One of the things I loved about that chapter, I forget what the acronym is, it's vertical BMPS. non-permanent spaces. Yeah, okay. Vertical non-permanent surfaces. Surfaces. Okay. One of the things I loved about that was there was something there was something reminiscent of research, um, like a traditional research paper, where there was like a discussion section, and you would sort of it was interspersed if I remember correctly, but some of the discussions would happen after, you know, this seemed to yield out in the research, and then you would start to think about why, right, yeah. and what it is it about, you know, my favorite part about that chapter was like you trying to think about and then surveying students about what it was about a non-permanent vertical space surface, excuse me, 
that lent itself to an increase in engagement and increase in thinking? Oh, yeah. Well, that was all my research. So mm -hmm. typically a researcher does what we call theory first. Sure. So they have a theoretical underpinning. They have a they have a conjecture or a hypothesis, and then they test that hypothesis. My research was not theory first, it was results first. Let's just try something. And if it's better than what we were doing before, let's try something else. And we just and let's refine and refine until what we have are re reproducible results. So, for example, if we keep we keep trying having students work at vertical whiteboards, uh, and it just keeps producing positive results over and over and over again, we have a we have a re reproducible result that says this is better. Now let's try to understand why that is. Like why try to understand why things are when I know I'm going to leave them because they're not good enough. We're going to keep trying on other things. Mm. Um, and that one was really interesting and in trying to understand what was it about these things that made it so much better. And, you know, there was having the students and it's not just students working individually. It turns out that it's students working in groups of three, one marker per group at a vertical whiteboard. So it doesn't have to be a whiteboard. It just has to be erasable. Yeah. Like a window or a I've been using wind I've been using windows this week. I'm teaching summer school physics and I've yeah. been using your book. Yeah. So it just has to be vertical and erasable. And and now why? Okay, so what are some of the reasons? Well, um, when it's vertical, everyone's oriented towards the work the same way. That's not true when they're sitting down. When it's vertical, um everyone can they can see each other's work, which promotes knowledge mobility. I can see everything. Uh, and that turns out to be better because I can I can I'm more effective as a teacher. Um, why erasable? Because uh, and that was such an interesting reproducible result because we'd have a group of students working on a vertical whiteboard right next to a group of students working on, on vertical flip chart paper. And like the, the contrast was shocking. Hmm. Right. Like the time to task, the amount of stuff that gets written down, how far they get into the task, like like it was just eclipsing. Hmm. Uh, working on the paper and the fact that when it's erasable students are willing to try more things because the risk the threshold for risk is lower because we can always erase it sure. and that's how we move our way forward in learning as we try we make sense we make meaning and then we try again hmm. and if you're standing there twiddling your thumbs trying to figure out what the right answer is right before you even tried anything that's a real barrier um <clears throat> anyway but all of these things were eclipsed by a piece of data that took forever to emerge. And largely because I was interviewing interviewing teenagers, you know, like anybody sure. out there listening, if you're doing your master's thesis and you need to interview anyone, interview teenagers. Hmm. Transcription is easy. They don't say a lot, right? Like it's um, but it was it was like it was like a movie where I was trying to interrogate convicts, right? Like it was. Like you'd ask them a question, they're like, uh, mm, uh, eventually someone says something and then you can use that to pry a little bit more information mm. out of the next person and so on. And one of the things that one of the students said something at one point was something about being invisible when they're sitting down and and then starting to use that in more, further and further interviews and, and unpacking this and students mm. starting to reveal more and more, not because they were trying to hide it from me, but because, you know, it's hard for a research subject to find the words to explain what what they're experiencing, right? Sure. Um, but it turns out in an interesting way that it's not that standing is so good, it's that sitting is so bad. And not like sitting is the new smoking bad. It's that 
when students are sitting, they feel anonymous. And the further they, they sit from the teacher, the more anonymous they feel. And when students feel anonymous, they disengage. And that's both a conscious and a subconscious act. That they're like, oh, the teacher can't see me, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play on my cell phone or I'm going to do something else. Uh, but it's also completely subconscious, which is that they just sort of, they just drift away. Um, and what standing up did was it took away the anonymity. They just didn't disengage because they didn't feel anonymous anymore. Um, and it's such, and you know, ironically, especially when you're dealing with high school, a lot of the kids put themselves in certain seats so that they can be anonymous, so that they can disengage. That's fascinating. Teachers do that too, by the way. We do that. When, you know, when you, I do that, you go to a meeting, you think, oh, this is going to be boring. I'm going to sit in the back, right? Huh. Like, <clears throat> yeah, I'm thinking about my entire, my entire upbringing as a Catholic, sort of sitting in the back of the, the church. Right. Yeah. Well, it's, it, you know, and I remember taking our kids to church and it was the same thing. We started in the back because it yeah, was like, so, they were, you know, they were a handful and it was, Interesting. And then the priest said to us, no, 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 you got to get up front. There's way more things. There's not a lot that happens, but there's way more happening up front for them to pay attention to. Like, you know. Interesting. No, I, I was so fascinated by I do get the sense, and, and we don't have to start to unpack this, but I get the sense even outside of the classroom that anonymity is has a certain danger or at least um opportunity cost to it. Even just in interactions, you know, when students walk by teachers and don't say hello or they're shocked when a teacher does say hello, there's a sort of anonymity that, and it would be interesting to talk to your, uh, to Darian Allen, to think about some of these psychological impulses towards disengagement. Um, yeah. But or yeah, there's, a, there's an like enormous... Engagement is high energy. Thinking is hard work. Yeah. And it might be cost efficient to, <laughs> to you know, selectively disengage. Yeah. Right. It's it certainly time goes slower, but it is easier. Yeah. I don't want to outline all the 14 variables. <laughs> and I also don't want to out myself if I forget any. But there were some that were really impactful that, you, you know, the, the whiteboard or the vertical non-permanent um, surface. Yeah. There was big changes. There was big changes that produced big results. OK. Like ver having them work on a vertical whiteboard. And then there was. Small changes that produce big results. Mm. Results like I'm going to make you stand up when I'm talking to you. Yeah, I loved one of my favorites was the if you make it random, but they don't see the randomization process. And I'll make this more clear: if you yeah. make the groups that they're in more random, I'm sorry, random, but they don't see that randomization process, they assume even if you tell them this is a random process, they assume that there's some calculation there. Yeah. And, and you have you're to being strategic show, in some way. Yeah. And you have to show them the randomization yeah. process. You get you you yield more thinking, which is fascinating. Yeah. The um, perception of random was much more important than actually being random. Wow. Yeah. That's that's fascinating. And it seems like <clears throat> such a small tweak, right? Yeah, yeah. Like I would have been fascinated to have watched you over the course of however many. Oh, yeah. The first oh. time we did that, we came in and says, here's your new random groups. And we're like, and the kids are like, uh-huh. Yeah. Random, you say. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Uh, and then sort of like having the desks um, not all face one direction. Yeah, defronted. Defronted. So that one was really counterintuitive and made a lot of teachers uncomfortable. Well, I'm I'm curious and I'm saying these to sort of set this question up. I have a, a friend and colleague who 
I think socially is is sort of leans towards being more conservative and and we always talk about you know this give and take in institutions between conservatives and liberals and and he has he has a he has this great way of putting it he's like look if it, if the institution's healthy the job of the liberal is to imagine what might not be necessary but the job of the conservative is, is to say okay look if we're going to knock down walls and we're going to think about whether or not the the classroom needs to have walls etc my job is to say, wait a second, is that wall load bearing? <laughs> and I think that's a is brilliant. That important? You know, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah I think it's <laughs> a brilliant way to. And my question is, when you start tinkering around with some of these variables, it really just felt like everything was game, um, and that those things that were game that might have disoriented teachers or you know put them yeah. off guard yielded results that they didn't yeah. have to confront. Were there any? Were there any walls that were load bearing, so to speak, that you were like, actually, yeah, we, oh, we shouldn't move that? Geez, okay. Um, well, I think that one of the things that was load bearing is the fact that we need we need tasks, like the students need tasks to sure. to be working on, okay. right? And I think that's something that is invariant. That's true, no matter how you teach, you need tasks, right? Um, and that was it's just how we use them was 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 different and one of the things we actually found was <clears throat> by and large we don't need different tasks than what we have that that the tasks that our our textbooks have and the tasks that we already have in our file cabinets turned out to be perfectly adequate for this um we just needed to stop sucking the thinking out of them hmm. by pre-teaching it right interesting there's a lot of richness in the resources that we already have at our fingertips yeah, um, it was it was how we used them, not whether we used them. So I think that's a that's a that's an example of something that was load bearing. Um, and it's and it's uh, ironically one of the things that so many people around the world are working on. Right. Like, I don't in my opinion, I don't think the world needs more tasks. We have tons of tasks, uh, whether no matter what we teach. But there's always this movement. we got to find more tasks, better tasks. As if that's the panacea that that a good task is going to produce better results than a interesting than a different task because but it's it's not the task itself it's it's what the students bring to it it's the the environment you construct that in which the students are going to engage in the task that turns out to be much more important yeah we do need tasks absolutely because students need something to think about but hmm. it's. Forgive me if I'm misunderstanding or misremembering, but I thought there was a part of the 14 practices that actually did talk about tasks and yeah, and it's the first practice. Is that and, okay. and what go. we found out from that research was that it turns out to be really, really important that the first four to six in, uh, tasks that students encounter when you're trying to build a thinking classrooms are these rich non-curricular tasks, you know, where we're, we're trying to just get them thinking and create a, a shift in the environment. And they're used in concert with visibly random groups and vertical non-permanent surfaces. Um, <clears throat> but we did need those. But then we, we then after that, we shift into. Okay. But those, but the irony is teachers already have those. Like sure. every teacher has in their file cabinet or in their computer, like a dozen great tasks that they, mm. you know, they trot out the, the week before Christmas and on the first day of school and like, you know, yeah. these things. And those, those were really, those turned out to be really. And that would just be at the beginning of the, maybe a whole year. Would you recommend yeah. like, you know, yeah. maybe. So, a... 
I'm, I'm working on a book right now about this. Like what, one of the things that it's also useful to use those, what we call non-curricular tasks. If the students are coming back from a, a, a long break, just to re, re sort of reset the norms mm. of what's expected. <clears throat> but also if the teacher is like, it's the book is 14 practices and the book very clearly says, don't do all these at once. Like you can't do all of these sure. at once. It says, start with these three. And then when those three are up and running, add a fourth and then add a fifth. And then from then on, we're just adding one at a time. But it turned out to be really effective to use a non-curricular task when you're introducing a new ped pedagogical routine. Because you as a teacher have a lot going on when you're trying to introduce something new. When you're trying to define your classroom or think about how you're going to give a task or how to do a consolidation, the last thing you need to be thinking about is also trying to hit a standard or an outcome. Right. So it's like it gives you grace when you use a non-curricular task, when you're trying to focus on your pedagogy. It also gives the students grace because they're now working in an environment that is shifting under their feet, but they're mm -hmm. not on shifting ground while they're trying to also learn something that they <clears throat> that it's clear is important. So it just using non-curricular tasks throughout the year when you are trying to introduce more of these uh, thinking practices was also really useful i'm aware of the time um and though this might be a massive of course it is a massive category that we could unpack for much longer than we have i wonder if you could just entertain me a little bit <clears throat> i'm so curious about how you think about incentives in thinking classrooms yeah and and obviously like you you know you knocked at a bunch of them, I think you alluded to homework, you alluded to performance and tests and things like that. What do you think should be the driving incentives for students? Or is that even just the wrong way of thinking about it? I know wow. you talk about okay. this. Like um, well, so it depends on how you approach this from a philosophical perspective, right? Like sure. if you if you are if you want your classroom to be a place where students intrinsic values are are what drives their behavior, then you don't get a lot of say in that, right? Like you get to you get to create experiences for them where their intrinsic um, motives are are sort of awakened, let's say, right? Like if you create a really engaging experience where they did a lot of thinking and learning and they enjoyed it, now they're motivated to have more of those experiences. And in many ways, that's, I think, what Building Thinking Classrooms does. Uh, and one of the reasons it's been so effective is that when teachers try it, it works. And, and then it doesn't just work for the teacher, it works for the students. And then the students want more and the teacher wants more. And now, But these are, these are now wants rather than have-tos, so to speak. Sure. Um, so incentives, what should they, like, I think that students should be driven towards making meaning. They should be, they should at every turn try to make sense of what's happening. But then, but but given an environment and a context in which that meaning making can actually happen, right? Like one of the most frustrating things for a learner is wanting to make sense of something, but not being given a chance to do so. Right. And and having a teacher just say, no, 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 you just have to do it this way, just, just do it that way. Right. Like when a student wants to understand and you don't fulfill that, that's detrimental to their development. And, yeah. and so it's, it, it's not just trying to create a, a structure where their incentives are heightened, but it's, 
create an environment in which they can flourish. Yeah. Can I ask a sensitive question? Yeah. And I say that knowing you, you're, you're, you have to answer it. or <laughs> So it might be easier for me to ask you. Of course, you don't have to. But the role of a teacher in a thinking classroom, as you outlined it in the book and as you've outlined it here, is, of course, going to change. And, and it seems more less demanding in a traditional sense, perhaps, but certainly more cognitively demanding. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just really <laughs> curious if people will try to do this if they start to butt up against their own limitations and they might default to say, hey, you know what, Tommy, I actually can't think through what you're doing right now. Do it this way. Right. And then so you you, you know, you restart the mimicking paradigm again. So to, to, to what degree? And I'm sorry if I'm having yeah, trouble sort of no, turning this into okay, a question. So I, I can answer this in a couple of different ways. So first of all, I'm inter- I'm eternally optimistic about teachers as learners as well yeah. right and and our research validates this that that you know the second time we do something is way better than the first but not nearly as good as the third we grow sure. we grow we get better at it um we learn from our students um you know anticipation is only worth about five percent of experience it's five percent experience is the other 95 percent mm. right like we can try to anticipate everything but we gotta actually do it to learn from it so that we can do it better the next time. And, and teachers are continuously learning in this environment. And I'm, and I'm like I said, eternally optimistic about that. Um, but I want to juxtapose that against another thing, which is that I, I, I don't want building thinking classrooms to be ever, ever to be something that a teacher has to do. Sure. Right? So... What that means is like you, 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 you get this book, you start reading it. Now you're implementing it. That was your choice. Sure. Right. And now, because now we're talking about intrinsic motivation from the perspective of the teacher, you have stepped into that and now you want to get better and you're having success and you want to get to be, you want to refine, you want to do it even better and so on and so forth. And, and that's, what's going to carry the day. Right. That's it's it's the evidence that like I always say this, my my book has has data and it has stories in it, but those are not nearly as important as the data and the stories that you collect in your own classroom. Mm. Like like my data and my stories may motivate you to try it, but your data and your stories is what's going to keep you doing it. Mm. Right. That's really well said. Yeah. So it's. Like that, I think is, and I, I also think that respects the professional autonomy of teachers, and and I think that's incredibly important. That's an awesome answer, and and uh, very encouraging. I'm aware of our time again. Yeah, uh, I will plug this book in my introduction. I can't, I can't encourage people enough to to read this and really, you know, carry it with them as they think about teaching. Um. Can you tease us a little bit about the next book? I'm so fascinated. I, mm-hmm. I, I alluded to the to the English background, but it became apparent to me, and I should make this very clear. I, and you might warn me against this, given your uh, <laughs> research background, but it feels so generalizable. And I'm sure you've heard okay. that a million times. Uh, right. Would you so would you warn me against that? Yeah. So so I'm a former high school math teacher, which is only partially true. Because sure. I also taught English composition and physics. Okay. And so, and uh, 
So I can tell you the next two books are going to be about tasks for the thinking classroom, but it's going to be much more about that. It's how do we unravel and, and actually launch a full sequence within our room? And, and how do we do that? Like first minute to last minute. And what do we fill that space with? The task, the book after that is going to be sort of like a handbook, which is like the teacher is going to be able to sort of use this and carry it with them to refine their practice within the thinking classroom, right? It's going to have, you know, quick tips and video that they can scan with their phone and, and really practical uh, things that they can do to just improve from wherever they are, where they yeah. are. The book after that will be Building Thinking Classrooms, no subtitle. Mm. So it's just going to be, here's how we implement this across the curriculum. And I've done a ton of work on that. And it's, you know, if I had the time, I could probably sit down and write that book now. I just don't have the time to write that right now. Uh, sure. But it's it's coming. It's coming. And we have teachers using it in every possible subject. So it's, yeah, things change. Things are different depending on the subject, but it's not that different. Like randomized yeah. groups works the same in language arts as it does in math. Sure. Cool. Peter, thank you for your time. Thank you so much for your work. And I will promise to leave you alone for the next couple of years, if for no other reason, to give you some time to work on those books. I can't wait to read them. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs>